0: Stories. Everybody's got them and we can learn from each other. History can be traced through letters and writings, but the one thing that has remained throughout the generations is the oral tradition. Oral history is one attempt to pass along the stories, tales, musings and remembrances of one family for the benefit of listeners for generations to come. Join us now for this episode of Oral History with Jeff Silkowski. Thanks for joining us today or tonight or when you're, whenever you happen to be listening to this. We have achieved a milestone. We are at the 20th episode of Oral History. We began back in November of 2021, and we've done an episode every other week for that period of time. We're actually getting close to the end of our first season. We have about six episodes left after this. But it's so great to be a part of what it is that's going on here And what is going on here is um, storytelling, really, And storytelling for a purpose. I know you listen, and we've had some of you that have been with us from day one and have listened to every episode. And we even have a, a patron in our Patreon account that helps us offset some of the costs we have in keeping our website live and keeping all of the episodes live because a lot of these places that do podcasts will let you do so many for free, but then you can't do any more than that. But the goal is to keep them all live. And I want to let you in on a little secret. Yeah, you guys get to listen, and you get to be a part of this, but this is really for my kid. If you go back and you listen to episode one, you'll understand. We began just as a a, a way of remembering my dad. My dad um, lived with us for a number of years, and there was a decision that we made at one point, my wife and I, that he needed to spend time in a nursing home, and he didn't like it. And he didn't want to talk to me for a couple of weeks, but we had a dear friend named Tracy that during that time would just go and spend time with him and she would take a recorder along and he would tell stories about his life and she would listen and ask him questions. And we have that at our disposal. We can remember grandpa that way. And I want that for my kid. I want my kid to remember who her dad is and who her mom is. So she'll have the privilege of having all of this to listen to someday and to play for her kids and and to share where it's necessary. But in the meantime you guys get to be a part of it as well and it's been so we've, we've just been so grateful for the responses we've had we've had um, great response to the zilkowski years and the adoption years we had people reach out and and talk to us about those i did an episode not too long ago called anxiety that really resonated with some people especially on soundcloud where we're at And that really just must have hit a nerve for some people. We've even had podcast outlets reach out to us. Most recently, a a podcast group called Wisdom has reached out and asked us to be a part of that. And so it's just really cool. (laughs) I don't know how else to put it. It's just really cool that there's a platform like this, and I get to talk, and you get to listen, and we're both encouraged. So, thank you so much for listening. And today, we want to take you on at least the beginning of what was a 14 year journey for me. Uh, and we call it the CVC Year. CVC is Cuyahoga Valley Church. It's a church of about 1,500 people in Northeast Ohio that's been around since 1987. And I was on staff at that church for 14 years from 2005 until 2019. But I wanna dial back just a little bit and explain to you how I got to CVC, because I have a dear friend uh, still, Brian Howell. We worked in ministry together at Steve Green Ministries back in Nashville when I moved to Nashville in 1995. And for six years I traveled with Steve. Brian had been with Steve since about 1990 after having graduated from college and spent a little time with Bill Gaither and his group, Steve called him to serve as the musical director for his ministry and to travel the world with him, and Brian did so for a number of years, about five before I came along, and then he did it for a number of years after I left as well. Well, somewhere along the way in 2004, Brian was being recommended for a job at Cuyahoga Valley Church in Northeast Ohio, and he didn't even know it. Uh, Brian and I have a mutual friend named Jeff, and Jeff was at a conference and he met the founding pastor of CVC, Rick Duncan. And the two of them got together and Rick was just kind of giving Jeff the lowdown of what CVC was like and how they had been without a worship leader for a number of years. And Jeff said, I think I know who the guy is that needs to be your worship leader. And he went to Brian and told Brian about this church in Northeast Ohio. And Brian had no intention of leaving Steve Green Ministries. Like, I figured he was going to finish out Steve's ministry with him. But this was really intriguing to go and be a part of a church. And so Brian accepted the call to be the worship leader in 2004. um, He went to school. He went to college with my wife, and so she comes along in July of 2004 when she moves to Nashville and starts attending church there, and it's just where all the worlds collided. Well, when Brian hit the ground at Cuyahoga Valley Church, they had been, as I said, without a worship leader for a number of years, and part of that difficulty was volunteers had been doing it for quite a while. They'd been doing all the worship, they'd been doing all the tech, and Brian stepped in and very graciously began to love and care for this group and and kind of grow them in a direction that they hadn't gone before. And if you listen to back a couple of episodes, you can hear me talk about worship wars. Worship wars is when you try to introduce new worship styles in a church, and it very rarely never goes well. But At CVC, it went very well as Brian took over and began to love and care for the people at at CVC. And he grew the ministry. Uh, God grew the ministry through Brian almost immediately from a choir of about five. Within a few years, they had 60 in the choir. And from a few instrumentalists who had been doing just about everything every week, it grew to uh, 30s and 40s and And then he felt the need to bring someone along to do tech, because the volunteers had also been doing all of the tech. And that's where I came along. And it was in the basement of a church in Nashville, Tennessee, at Steve Green's daughter's wedding reception, that I kneeled at a table next to Brian and was talking to him about the potential of a job in Cleveland. And he wanted me to consider coming and being the technical director at this church. I also met my wife for probably the sixth time there. Go back and listen to how many times we actually met in what context and never really met. And by that, I mean we were in each other's presence and probably introduced, but it never really clicked. And it didn't even click this day in July of 2004. I know she was there. I remember her seated at the table, but it didn't click for her and I until we were both on the ground in Cleveland. At this church, and that's when God began to grow our hearts together. So I came in January of 2005. I left Nashville. I left behind, I had a condo that I was going to sell within the next few months. A friend of mine offered to sell it for me. I left behind a number of dear, dear friends. I left behind my life in nashville and i packed everything into a u-haul and i began driving north and pulling my blue hyundai behind my behind the moving van and i got to cleveland and it was january 15th i believe 14th when i arrived and it was a beautiful sunny day 60 degrees. We unloaded the truck. I moved into an apartment that I had never seen. Brian picked the apartment for me because when I was candidating, we had picked out a place somewhere else and it had fallen through. And I told Brian I trusted him implicitly to find a place that if he felt comfortable with it, I would most definitely would. And I did. And it just so happened to be two buildings away from where my wife of later that year was currently living. So built-in friends, built-in place to go to worship, built-in place to just plug into ministry, and a tremendous staff of people that were loving God and, and doing church in a very unique way. And I say that because when I hit the ground running, one of the things I realized right away is that there were two very vibrant but very different ministries taking place concurrently. There was what we called AM Church that met on saturday nights at five thirty and sunday morning for multiple services and then we had a young adult ministry that was meeting in the evening usually at 707 but it grew to three services at one point and then a service on tuesday and actually began to be uh larger numerically than am church and so it was just a a challenge and a and a great place to work from day one um AM Church is where I was responsible. I, I interviewed with the founding pastor and with Brian and his wife and with the f- with the pastor of the young adult ministry, but I really didn't have much involvement with that young adult ministry until several years later. Um, but in these first years, it was um, just kind of hit the ground running and know what it's like to work in a church again, um, and obviously a much larger church than I had worked in before. When I was on staff after having left Steve Green Ministries, I was on staff for a little over two years with Westmead Fellowship in Nashville, but I was only one of two staff members full-time, the pastor and myself, and then several other part-time staff members in a, a church of about 125. Now I'm at a church of about 1,200, and I'm on a staff with about 20 people, and just opportunities to grow, opportunities to to implement things that God was calling us to and I hit the ground uh, that day, unloaded the, as I said the, the moving van and then the next day I was in the booth with our, with our team and just growing in relationship with them. Well there were there were several of those volunteers that had actually been part of my hiring process. And they were from various areas. One of the ladies, my friend Tracy, who loved my dad and recorded him, uh, was part of that process. A dear friend named Ron, who was part of uh, other aspects of the technical arts ministry and who – was a dear friend until he passed away recently, was a part of that crew. And another gentleman by the name of DJ and another gentleman by the name of Gary. Gary DJ was the sound guy, the main sound guy. Gary was in charge of a video ministry. And when I hit the ground, it became, what are we going to do? And what are we going to do the same? What are we going to do differently um, than they had been doing? And what are we going to do the same or differently about what seven oh seven is doing on Sunday nights. Seven oh seven was just pushing the technological envelope, um, moving lights, uh, fog in the room, five screens in a in a worship service. Uh, worship. Uh, Center that seated about 500 live cameras, uh, pole cameras, little cameras on the end of a giant pole that they could go out over the audience and up to the stage, and just on and on. Like they were, they were crazy into technology at 707, but AM wasn't quite ready for all of that. There were little parts of it that kind of made its way over, but AM Church, as we called it, really wanted to keep it. Kind of simple and three screens max, and no cameras to start. In fact, the the video ministry when I started was my friend Gary just videotaping the sermons with a VHS camcorder. Remember, this is nineteen ninety five, two thousand five, um, but they were probably about a decade behind in that technology. And it was one of the first things that I just said, we need to kind of stop doing that, put our efforts into everything else and build those things up and make them better. And, and we did. We, we increased the reliability of rehearsals and, and just making people comfortable. We, we sort of bought into some of the technology that the 707 Young Adult Ministry was doing where the instrumentalists on stage would wear in-ear monitors and they would have a click track. And we implemented that um, we eventually implemented cameras, at least for recording and streaming, never quite doing it live in the room, but all of those things came about because of where 707 was out and the technology already existed. We just had to find the right time to implement it for AM Church. But I want to take you to one particular story. Um, Early on, it was probably maybe four months into my time at CVC, I came from uh, public television where I had worked in a public television station where we actually edited videotape. We edited three-quarter inch videotape by plugging tapes into machines and pre-rolling the tape and then cutting them together um, electronically. And when I was with Steve, my duties as video technician there involved primarily the cameras and the setup and the projection and all of that in a concert. There were opportunities that I had to do editing of some of the videos that Steve did. Steve had one in particular where he would sing live on stage with Larnell Harris, another Christian recording artist who was on videotape. And we would kind of play it back from a videotape and position Steve in a way that we could cut between them and have them standing side by side, so to speak, on the screen. And people loved it. But my, my editing of those videos was going to a production house and actually sitting with an editor. And he pushed the buttons and he did the editing. I just told him what I wanted and he accomplished what I needed. And I would walk out the door with a finished product. Well, when I got to CVC, there was the expectation that Jeff knew all of this editing stuff, all of this video stuff. And it wasn't not true It just wasn't true in the way that it was being done at that time. Video had taken a very different turn in the early 2000s where it had shifted from tape based to what's called nonlinear editing, basically getting files into a computer and then just kind of cutting things together. It's how we do the recordings, part of the recordings of oral history is in a video program because I can mix the tracks together, but at the time, I I got there, and we entered a series early in 2005, uh, a teaching series called Stuff, S-T-U-F-F, and it was about materialism. The overarching theme was, obviously, we don't need to be materialistic people, and the Bible says don't put your, you know, trust in the wealth of things here, put your trust in eternal things. And one of the things that the founding pastor Rick Duncan and Brian wanted to do was they wanted to do a stand-up with Rick at one of the local malls. So there's a place just south of where I live called South Park Mall in Strongsville, Ohio, and Brian got a hold of them, got permission to, for us to be there, for us to sit up, to videotape this stuff, and and then kind of do some other things that day. And so we arrive, and we took one of the cameras from our 707 ministry, and we had a tripod and lights, and we had a microphone for Rick, and we stood at the edge of the food court with all of the shops behind him, and, and he did his part. And I'll put in the description somewhere um, uh, for this episode where you can actually go and watch that video because it's still on YouTube. But the the purpose of it was for him to say, you know, hey, here's... Here's the stuff that we have all around us, and we have this world that markets to us. And 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 it just kind of dry, can drive us toward materialism. And so he did his stand-up, and then I kind of sent Brian and Rick home with half of the equipment. And I just took the camera and went and shot what we call in video B-roll, where you just shoot uh, video with no sound of various different things. And it was crazy as I was going through the mall and I was getting shots of signs and different ways, different kind of creative angles. And about three times in my half hour of being in this mall, I had store owners rushing out of the store yelling at me that I could not be there, that I couldn't videotape their store. And I had to explain to them, well, we have permission to be in the store. I'm not coming into your store, but we have permission from the mall to be here, and I'm just getting shots. I'm not doing anything. Uh, what they were afraid of, and it took me a while to realize this, is that there were a couple of TV stations in the Cleveland market that were competing for viewers. And they had competed in such a way as to become what I would call almost tabloid news type stations. They had they would send out these investigative reporters who would burst their way into businesses with microphones and cameras and ask people hard questions and 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 people were just afraid that i was A guy named Ed Gallick. Okay, if you're you're not from Northeast Ohio, that doesn't mean anything to you. But if you're from Northeast Ohio, you know who Ed Gallick is. And he is one of the most aggressive guys of just getting in your face journalism. And that's what these store owners must have thought of me. And I had to explain to them, that's not why I'm here. So I finished shooting the B-roll that day and I went back and this was on a thursday i had captured stuff we were needing to have this video ready for saturday service so i had one day to accomplish the edit and i contacted a dear friend of mine named dave dave is now the worship leader at the church i'm on staff at now which is refuge community church and dave owns a court reporting business in downtown ohio in a in a bank building in like one of the top floors and it's got like beautiful views and all this stuff so i called dave and i said i, I need to edit this. Can I come to your place? Because I didn't have any editing software at the church. And he said, sure, come on. So I get there and I'm sitting with Dave and I realized pretty quickly that Dave's abilities in this one Apple-based program were pretty limited to the type of editing that he does for court reporting. It's all very simple. It's all very straightforward. It's cut out the bad stuff, include the good stuff, and no frills. Well, I was really wanting to do some cut to a song, um, cut to the beat of a song and some different things. And I was told by Dave after, you know, about 20 minutes of working on this program, he said, I don't think this is the program that you need to be in. He said, I have another program, but I don't really use it. He said, but I'm going to call a friend of mine. He knows how to use it really well. And he'll come in. He'll show you what to do. So sat around for about a half hour with my friend Dave. And all of a sudden, this guy named Michael shows up. And Michael showed me in about 45 minutes to an hour how to edit video, nonlinear video. Okay, I brought with me the skills that I had developed with tape-based editing, and I brought to the table the skills that I had learned and the creative aspect of things at the time I'd been at Steve Green Ministries, but I'd never actually implemented the actual edits by doing the work myself in this nonlinear editor. And so... Michael showed me an incredible amount of patience. He showed me an incredible amount of wisdom, and he taught me how to edit in, like I said, just under an hour. And then I was on my own. So I've got maybe 30, 45 minutes of of footage that I've got to compile into something about three minutes long at the most and have it ready the next day. It needs to be ready to go for services that next night. And so 8 o'clock rolls around. um, David... The owner of the court reporting agency says, I have to go. He said, are you going to stay? And I'm like, can I? And he said, yeah. So he tosses me the keys to this place in this bank building. And I'm locked into the fifth or sixth floor of the Ohio Savings Bank Building. And I can get out through the garage. But I sat there and edited this project until it was complete. And I had it on a DVD at that point that I could walk out the door with about 1215 the next morning met my deadline. We played it in the services. It was exactly what they wanted. And that was the first step of moving in the direction of what CVC wanted to do with video. They wanted to utilize me not only as the technical director for making the services happen, but to create content for services on a pretty much weekly basis, something, uh, video testimonies or whatever. And, and so I took that skill immediately went back and bought my own version of an editing program, um, different than our young adult ministry was using because the one they were using, I actually asked one of their technicians to help me learn it. And he stood over my shoulder for a total of about 30 seconds and said, you do this, do this, do this, do this and do this and everything will be good. And I went, that didn't help. So i bought a program called Adobe Premiere and, and just kind of took off. And that's where my kind of time at CVC began. And for the next 14 years, it was that kind of just being involved in every aspect of church life, um, videotaping people's baptism testimonies. That became something that we did Very early on and until I left 14 years later, I saw a tremendous amount of people come through the process of baptism, and they would share their stories with me. I would videotape them, cut them down, and then we would play them on the screen over their heads as they were in the pool being ready to and, and then actually being baptized. It's where we met friends. We still have friends, Evelyn and her daughter, Evelyn, who I just got to see for the first time in a number of years this past week. They were part of that process and that's how we met them and became friends with them. There were other people that came through that process and I heard so many interesting and just God-glorifying stories of life change through that process. I heard people talk about the hard things in their life and how Christ met them where they were at and how he changed those things about their life and set them on a course that was different than their life before. I heard it from five-year-olds who could articulate the gospel of Jesus Christ, one in particular probably better than any of the adults ever did, to 70- and 80-year-old people that had come to Christ later in life. And it was incredible to be a part of those people's stories throughout the years. In fact, for a period of time, we started doing them at the church and people were very inhibited by the nature of a cluttered office or you know a, a, a prayer room or something of that nature. So for a, a number of years, my wife and I would open our home multiple times a year to do these videotaping of these baptism testimonies. And we, there are a number of them that, again, you can go back and watch on YouTube with our fireplace in the background, because all we would do is bring these people into our home, get them comfortable and sit them down. They would converse with my wife and I would basically eavesdrop with the video camera. And it was always interesting to take their stories, some of which were seven minutes long or three minutes long or 20 minutes long, and then cut it down to 90 seconds basically of what it is that Christ had accomplished in these people's lives. And I heard so much, so much that never made the cut, so to speak, as they say in movies and television, some of the things that had to be left on the editing room floor. But these people's stories were just incredible of the way God reached them, changed them, and turned their life in a new direction. And that's, when I say the gospel, that's it. The gospel is simply Somebody recognizing that where they're at, their life is not moving in the right direction. And if if we all understand that, for me, it was those four years of high school when I had my family and I had left the Catholic Church at age 14, those four years of growing darkness in my life, where God let me wander as far as... I could wander from him so that at some point I would look and go, how did I get here? Now, for me, it was in just lust and and things of that nature. But for some people, it's at the bottom of a bottle or at the bottom of a bottle of pills or deep in materialism, like the Stuff series was teaching about and against, or Whatever it is, every one of us understand at some point in our life that we're broken and that we need something, and we go to try to fill that hurt in us with something else. Relationships, love, sex, money, power, fame, drugs, alcohol, pornography, whatever it is. We're looking for something to either fill or dull that pain. And the only thing that fills it, the only thing that can correct it, Is Jesus, and Jesus stands ready to fill that place. He did so for me in October of 1983. He did so for all of these people that came through this these baptism, baptism testimonies. He was there waiting. He was waiting for them to find the end of themselves and come back. I know you've heard me talk about this before. I I just rehearsed this with somebody this past week, the story of the prodigal in Luke 15. Now, I say the prodigal because we often think the prodigal son, that's kind of what most people say, or it's the lost son. But prodigal simply means to lavishly spend something, okay? Yes, the son in Luke 15 is a prodigal. He takes his father's inheritance And he disappears with it. He says, Dad, I want all of it now. I want my half of the inheritance. I have a brother. Give me my half. I'm going to go spend it. I'm going to go spend it in the world. And he goes and he lives lavishly. He lives a prodigal life. And he spends it all. He's got friends as long as he's got money. As soon as the money's gone, he's got no friends left. And he finds himself in just the most probably despicable circumstances possible for a young Jewish boy. He finds himself feeding pigs. And he's longing to eat what the pigs are eating because he's so hungry. And he realizes at that moment that his dad, back where he left him, his dad's servants eat better than this. And he thinks, man, if I just go back to my dad and just throw myself on the mercy of my dad, he'll at least let me be a servant in his house. Okay, that's the prodigal son. So he goes back. The real prodigal in the story is the dad, because the dad's been waiting on the porch of that house every day, looking to the end of the driveway for his son to come home. And when he finally on that day sees his son walking up the driveway, the father prodigally lavishes his love upon his son and tells him, I'm so glad you came back. Here's a robe, and he puts a robe on him, and he and he puts a ring on his finger and he welcomes him back, not as a servant, but as the son who had left. He kills a fattened calf and throws a throws a party for his son. He lavishes his love upon his son because he's just been waiting for his son to figure out that you can run from God, but at some point you're gonna realize. It's him, it's him you're looking for. It's Jesus Christ that can change your life. And I hope that's you today. As I shared that with a lady in a hospital this past week, that resonated with her. She understood that. She had a great relationship with her dad. And I know it doesn't resonate with everybody because of your earthly father. But that is a picture of God. He is the prodigal father who's just waiting for you to come back. Give up on the drugs or the alcohol or the materialism or religion or fame or money or whatever it is. The stuff that you thought was going to fix you, that was going to numb that hurt, that was going to fill that hole. He's just waiting for you to come back. And as soon as you come back... As soon as you run to him, he's going to take you and he's going to hold you in his arms and he's going to put your head to his chest, metaphorically, and he's going to love you and he's going to welcome you into his family again because he wants you to be his child. So much so that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to the cross to pay the penalty for your sin. That's what the gospel is. Jesus led a perfect life on earth. And when he was on the cross, his perfect, his perfection was given to us in exchange for our sin. God put our sin on Christ and then turned his face from his son so that we might be given Christ's righteousness and so that we could spend eternity with God in heaven in his presence and with family that know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. So that's my prayer for you today. Yeah, I started out talking about CVC, and I'm going to spend some more talking about the next few years of CVC, and then I'm going to finish with how CVC led to refuge. But right now I want to pray for you, because as I talked about this, I know some of this has begun to resonate in your heart. I just know it because the Bible says that God's word will not return void, meaning once it's spoken, you have to do something with what you hear, and you can't just ignore it. It has to be dealt with. So let me pray for you right now. Father, I pray for those who are hearing this, and for the first time in their lives, they realize that they're right there as the prodigal was going, I'm at the bottom. I'm at the bottle of a bottle. I'm at the bottom of a bottle of pills. I'm at the bottom of materialism. I'm at the bottle of something. And it's got to be better somewhere. And that somewhere is in the arms of my heavenly father. So I'm going to go running back as the prodigal son did. And God's going to accept you into his arms. All you have to do is know that what Christ did on the cross, he did for you. And turn from the things in your life that you can't do anything about. Those things that you tried to make the hurt go away, turn away from them. Turn away from your sin. Confess your sin. And tell Jesus right now, right where you're at, I know what you did on the cross, you did for me. I turn from my sins, and I turn to you. Make me your child, hold me to your chest. Put the robe on my on my back and the ring on my finger and welcome me into the family. And I will live for you. I will make you Lord of my life. I will give you control. Please be my Savior. Save me from myself. Save me from my sin. Save me from eternal punishment. Save me from hell. For those of you that already know Christ, have boldness, have boldness to share and be ready to share the story of what Christ has done in your life. Like these people did in these baptism testimonies. Like I had the privilege of sharing with this lady in the hospital this past week, because people out there need to know what you know. They need to know that God is a prodigal father and wants to lavish his love upon them. So the next time you're in a coffee shop and you see somebody with their head hung low, go over and ask them, is everything okay? And listen. Take time to listen to what's going on in their life. And God will give you the words to say, to share with them the truth of the gospel. So thank you for being a part of this today. Thank you for the privilege of just doing this every other week for 20 times now. And thank you for the support. If you want to go to arl-history.com, you can find all of our podcasts. You can look and see all of the stuff that I've talked about, about why we do what we do. You can email me. Please do so. Tell me your stories. I want to know them, and I want to know how I can pray for you. And you can be a part of what we do here as well. You can support us on Patreon. So go to arl-history.com. Thanks for being with us today. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Oral History. This has been a production of Z Media and is copyrighted with all rights reserved. Join us again next time.